Have you ever experienced the apparent absence of God? If you haven't yet, you most likely will at some point. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to what many preachers and teachers will tell you these days, the Christian life is not always smooth sailing. And every day is not a Friday. Though God is actually everywhere, He's never literally absent. He does at times hide from us, so to speak. He removes from us a sense of His presence. This is an experience that God's people have had throughout history, Old Testament and New Testament. One of the difficulties of the Christian life is seasons of God's apparent absence. To those who have experienced this, what does it feel like? You remember. Or perhaps you're in that place even this morning. It feels like little satisfaction in God. Because little satisfaction in Him, little at all. Because once you've tasted the goodness of God, you can no longer be deeply satisfied with the world apart from Him. And so when those seasons come where you're finding little satisfaction in God, you're just finding little satisfaction, period. Because the world just won't do it for you the way it once did. When we cannot get a taste of the sweetness of God, everything loses its luster. And what little satisfaction we have in life is shallow and fleeting. At these times, there's a longing to go and to be with the Lord. Not that we necessarily become suicidal, though perhaps that can be the experience of some. But even when we're not suicidal, there may be a longing that the Lord would take us and a longing that we would be with Him. And yet at the same time, sometimes there's a fear that perhaps even there too we'll continue to be unsatisfied since we're not presently finding much joy in Him. Attempts at prayer are stilted and clumsy It feels like the words are just words and that they're not going anywhere beyond the walls or the ceiling of the room that we're in. You hear praise and worship songs on the radio sung by those who seem to really love the Lord passionately. And you feel a little envious but at the same time you feel a little bit like changing the station. Because it just reminds you of how far you've, how far there is between you and this, these people singing. There's a certain sense of expectancy, opening up the scriptures, or going to church, that perhaps God will break through the darkness. But then there's a certain disappointment or disillusionment. When the Bible seems just a book, and when church seems just an ordinary meeting of religious enthusiasts, and no power is felt, 
There's no tangible breaking through the darkness. This is something like what it feels when God seems to be absent. As I said, He's not ever literally absent because God is everywhere. But when God hides His face from us, that's something like what it feels. And contrary to what many will tell you, that is and has been the experience of Christians from time to time throughout all of history. God's people, Old Testament and New, have at times felt like this. There are two basic types of apparent absence, or two, two basic causes or categories of apparent absence. One is corrective. When God is correcting you, and so He hides His freight face from you until you repent. That's what's going on in the passage that we just read. In Hosea chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find Him. He has withdrawn from them. Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15 records the Lord saying, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. God has withdrawn himself. You will notice as Hosea 5 and verse 15 says, because of their guilt. Guilt is involved. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt. There's, there are times when God removes from us a sense of His presence because of our guilt. The psalmist also felt this. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, that is, about his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. When I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There are times and seasons where we cherish or indulge a sin. And God hides his face from us. Until we forsake that sin, until we return to Him, until we repent, until in our distress we earnestly seek His face. Have you ever experienced that sort of apparent absence? Are you experiencing that sort of apparent absence now? The second type of apparent absence is disconnected from a particular sin. This is the kind of situation where God has hidden His face from you, but not because of a particular sin you've committed. The famous English preacher Spurgeon struggled with depression throughout the course of his life and ministry. And he, he himself said, depression is of spirit is not necessarily an index of declining grace. 
The very loss of joy and the absence of assurance may be accompanied by the greatest advancement in the spiritual life. There are times when God sees fit to lead us through some darkness. Not because we've done something wrong, but in order that He may do something good. Sometimes God puts us through an experience of spiritual desolation. Removing from us a sense of His presence for His own good purpose. Without any consideration to a particular sin that we may have committed. In other words, sometimes this sense of God's absence isn't a result of a particular or specific sin that we've committed. But is simply part of God's plan for our lives in order to bring about His good purposes. One of which may be producing in us the holiness that He desires. We can think, of course, of Job. And the grander purpose there was not uh, necessarily to make Job holier, but to manifest Job's holiness and to manifest God's own worthiness to be worshipped even if everything else was stripped away but nevertheless Job went through this experience of God's apparent absence for no particular sin that he had committed that book is very clear about that Job says in chapter 30 and verse 20 to God I cry to you for help and you do not answer me I stand and you do not look at me This wasn't connected to a particular sin that Job had committed. That book's very clear about that. But nevertheless, Job had God's face hidden from him. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. We looked at this a couple of months ago at the Women's Sanctification Study. Paul says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul goes on to say something else, which I'll quote in a moment. But just pause there for a second and think about that. The apostle was despairing of life itself. He felt that he had received the sentence of death. We sing these songs, and now I am happy all the day. And if, if what we mean by, and now I am happy all the day, means that we have a joy that is abiding, that is transcendent, that's bigger than all of the difficult circumstances that we face. Or as I've quoted from World War II Holocaust survivor Betsy Ten Boom, there is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. If that's what we mean by, and now I am happy all the day, then we can sing that from our hearts. But if we understand that to mean we will not go through times when we despair of life itself. Times when God's face is hidden from us, as it were. Where we feel like Job, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. If that's what we mean by it, then it's an unbiblical lyric. 
sometimes God causes us to pass through difficult seasons. Not necessarily because we've committed a particular sin. In that sense, nothing's wrong. But for His purpose, whatever it may be. Have you experienced that sort of apparent absence? The two kinds, corrective and then what we could call formative. To form you into the character of Christ. Or perhaps for some other purpose unknown to us. But formative is disconnected from a particular or specific sin. Those two kinds. Israel, in Hosea's day, was experiencing God's apparent absence. We read from chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 15 already, but just let me refresh your memory. God says, through His prophet in Hosea chapter 5 and verse 6, "...with their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord." But they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. And God himself says in chapter 5 and verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Israel was guilty of sin. And for their sin, because of their sin, God had withdrawn Himself. And so God's apparent absence toward the nation of Israel at this time was not formative in the sense that it was not disconnected from their personal sin. It was because of their personal sin. This was a corrective measure of God. Because Israel sinned, therefore the Lord withdrew Himself. Because Israel sinned, therefore the Lord hid His face from them. Hosea is a beautiful book. Filled with strong language and vivid metaphor. The prophet is instructed to go and take to himself, as the ESV puts it in chapter 1 and verse 2, a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Why? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's what the book of Hosea is about. The land has, the nation, the people of Israel have acted as a whore. And so there is in this book of Hosea, eventually, a beautiful picture drawn of God's love for His unfaithful people. But before we get there, there's the anguish and the anger and the judgment and the wrath due towards an unfaithful bride spoken of by God concerning the nation of Israel 
God speaks of them, the nation, as a whoring people. And in chapter, the end of chapter 5, he speaks of hiding his face from them, withdrawing from them because of this whoring, because of this sin. Because of their sin, instead of God's smile, they are under God's frown. Instead of God's blessing, they have received His curse. God has crushed them. Chapter 5 and verse 11. Or struck them down. is another way we could say that. And God has torn them like a lion tears its prey. Chapter 5 and verse 14. This is the situation in Israel. God has struck them down, torn them, and withdrawn from them. This is in keeping with God's covenantal commitments. God had covenantally committed Himself to withdrawing His smile and His blessing from the nation of Israel if they broke covenant with Him. In other words, God's covenant faithfulness necessitated that God punish Israel for its covenant unfaithfulness. The last half of Deuteronomy chapter 28 speaks to this. And here's just the introduction to that section of the chapter. I'd read it, but it's about 30 verses long and you get the idea. God says in Deuteronomy 28 verse 15, as he enters into covenant with the nation of Israel, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all of his commandments and statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then very specific curses are delineated throughout the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 28. In other words, God had been clear with Israel. If you are unfaithful to the covenant, then my faith, my covenant faithfulness means that I will curse you instead of bless you. So Israel, in Hosea's day, was experiencing a corrective sense of God's absence. God had removed Himself from them because of their sin. They were in that place that you and I are in from time to time, in which, as Isaiah says, our iniquities have made a separation between us and our God, and our sins have hidden His face from us so that He does not hear. What is the remedy? This was the situation that Israel was in. This is a summary of the first five chapters of Hosea, culminating here in Hosea 5 and verse 15, where the Lord says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. What is the remedy for this striking down? For this tearing up. For this withdrawal. Hosea chapter 6 verses 1 to 3. Provide for us the remedy. Commentators. Are not unified in who is speaking. In verses 1 to 3. Come let us return to the Lord. 
For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Is this the prophet Hosea summoning his fellow Israelites to return to the Lord? That he turns, as it were, to them and says, come, let us return to the Lord. Is it the faithful remnant among the people? We're not led to believe that literally every last one of the Israelites had played the whore. That there were individuals, there were individuals in the nation of Israel who remained faithful to God. So is this them speaking? As they hear this indictment, as they hear the judgment of God upon the nation for their sin, this is the faithful remnant saying to their countrymen, Come, let us return to the Lord. I think that it's actually God putting words, the words that He desires to hear from the Israelites in their mouths. Illustrating what the return, the acknowledgement, the seeking described in the last verse of chapter 5 would look like. In other words, look at verse 15 of chapter 5. If Israel acknowledged their guilt, if Israel sought God's face, if in their distress they earnestly sought Him, what would that look like? And I think that verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6 are God providing an example of what that would look like. It's as if the Lord says, say to me, this is what I want to hear. Come, let us return to the Lord, etc., etc., However we understand it though, as the words of the prophet, the words of the faithful remnant, or the words of God prompting the nation, as a parent might prompt a child to repeat after me, these verses certainly serve as inspired guidance for strugglers. We know that the Holy Spirit wrote these words. Regardless of who is the speaker, this is the path that Israel was to walk moving forward. Press on to know the Lord. Meaning, pursue or follow after the Lord. Chase Him. Go after Him. Persevere. Don't let Him get away. Press on to know the Lord. To know Him meaning to have a close, familiar relationship with Him. They already knew about Him. Press on that they might have a close, familiar relationship with God. In other words, press on to enjoy communion or fellowship with God. Press on towards fellowship or communion with God. We will recall... As I've explained before, that our union with Christ is unshakable and unchanging. You don't read anything in the scriptures about us losing our union with Christ. Nothing can separate me from God's love, which is mine in Christ Jesus. To be granted eternal life 
which stops at some point, would be actually not to have ever received eternal life in the beginning, right? Our union with Christ cannot change. We are bound to Him. His obedience has become ours. His death was in our place. And God has irreversibly decreed that we would be justified. That we are counted as righteous in His sight. That we are accepted for His sake. Because He obeyed in place of our disobedience. And He bore the punishment that we deserved for our sins on the cross. By faith in Him, we are united to Him. We receive what He won for us. This union is unshakable. But our communion with Christ can ebb and flow. Our communion with Him fluctuates. What is exhorted here What the people here are exhorted to do is to pursue communion with God. Those who have ears to hear among the nation of Israel are called to turn away from the sins of their countrymen. The the sins of those who are mere physical descendants of Abraham. And hear the voice of God summoning them to return. And there to respond with repentance, with faith, with pressing on in order to have that communion with God restored. That was the summons to Israel while under a corrective action of God whereby he had withdrawn himself a sense of himself from them that is the same summons that we need to hear when God has withdrawn himself from us As they were to press on to know God, we are to press on to know God. To get back into that close, familiar relationship with Him that as believers we once enjoyed. We should go in a Godward direction in spite of God's apparent absence. I've said it to myself when going through these seasons myself. And I've said it to others when trying to help walk with them through these seasons. Go by what you know, not what you feel. Go by what you know, not what you feel. Feelings are a gauge and not a guide. Feelings are more like the speedometer on your car than they are like a GPS device or the Google Maps app on your phone. Your feelings simply tell you what is happening, not what ought to be happening. Just as your speedometer, if you were on the highway here, if you look down and your speedometer read 140 kilometers per hour, it would be telling you what is happening and not what ought to be happening. So it is with our feelings. They simply tell us what is happening, 
not what ought to be happening. In other words, I do feel sad. I do feel estranged from God. Not necessarily, I ought to be sad, or I ought to feel estranged from God. Your feelings tell you that something is not ideal. Your feelings don't tell you how you should respond to the less than ideal situation. Your feelings don't tell you where to go. Scriptures tell you where to go. Scripture is our GPS device or our Google Maps app on our phone. Scripture says, love the Lord your God, as we read earlier in the service, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And where's the exception clause? Except when you don't feel like Except when you're going through a dark season. Except when you're struggling. There is none. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The scripture is our GPS device or our Google Maps app. Our feelings are just our speedometer. They just tell you something's happening. So you need to learn to listen to the scripture instead of listening to your feelings. Go by what you know, not what you feel. So go on in spite of the apparent absence. Because God tells us how we ought to be living. Obeying that is obviously therefore right. So go in a Godward direction in spite of God's apparent absence because it's right. Press on to know Him because it's right. But also, go in a Godward direction through the apparent absence. Not only in spite of, but also through the apparent absence. Trust that eventually, believer, you will come out the other side. Whether in this life or the next, struggling soul, you shall see God's face. Going in a Godward direction is right because the Bible commands it. It's also effective because of God's covenant faithfulness, which we began talking about just a couple moments ago. Going in a Godward direction is effective because of God's covenant faithfulness, or because of the steadfast love of the Lord, which we also looked at a few weeks ago. From Psalm 136. God promised Israel in the covenant he made with them, which we mentioned a few moments ago from Deuteronomy 28, that if they would repent and move in a Godward direction, he would likewise move towards them. Listen to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 3. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And He will gather you again 
from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So the people of Israel could count that because of God's faithfulness to his covenant, if they wandered from him and played the whore, then God would curse them. But they could be sure that having been cursed, if they would return to God because of God's covenant faithfulness, he would yet again smile upon them. And we are likewise promised the same kind of divine movement towards us in the new covenant as we repent of our sins and move towards Him. James chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. James is speaking here to brothers, as he says in verse 11 of that chapter. Therefore, the instruction is that Christians who are experiencing a corrective sense of God's absence should repent of their sins and move towards God, and that this is the path toward God's restoration. Of his felt presence. So, both in the old covenant and in the new, God promises that when his people repent of their sins, he will eventually, though inevitably, restore a felt sense of his presence to them. It might not be immediate, as illustrated by the exile in Babylon, which lasted 70 years. Or, as illustrated by Christians throughout history who struggled with depression to the end of their earthly lives. It might not be like repent today and be bubbling over with joy tomorrow. But inevitably, we are summoned to press on to know the Lord and we are told that it won't be fruitless. That it won't be futile. That we will not only press on to know the Lord in spite of God's apparent absence, but that we will eventually get through God's apparent absence and yet again see His face. The dwelling place of God shall be with man hereafter, even if God seems far and away here and now. And now listen, if all of this is true about a corrective sense of God's presence, if even those who have sinned, and because of their sin, God has withdrawn a sense of His presence from them, if even they will eventually and inevitably have a sense of God's presence restored to them, then how much more confident should we be that those persons will yet again see God's face from whom He has hidden it, not for any particular fault of their own, not for any particular sin that they've committed, but simply for whatever purpose, in order to form them into the character of Christ increasingly, or something like that. If even those whose sin has driven a felt sense of God's presence from them 
are promised in Old Testament and New. That upon their drawing near to God, He will draw near to them. How much more confident should we be that when, like Job, our darkness is not tied to any specific and particular sin, we will yet again see God's face. That should enable us to have confidence to press on toward communion with God, not only in spite of God's apparent absence, knowing that that's right and that's what we should do, but that should be motivation and impetus for us to press on towards communion and fellowship with God, knowing that eventually we will get there. Persevering in a Godward direction in spite of God's apparent absence is right then and it is the most effective way to see God's face again as soon as possible. We don't know how long He will cause us to linger in the darkness but we do know that for those who belong to Him He will not hide His face forever. If you're in sin, repent. Remove the ground, the cause of this Hiding. And if you're not in particular sin, obviously we're all sinners. But if it's not because of a particular tangible thing, trust that it's going to be lifted eventually. That one day you will see God's face. Moving in a Godward direction then, in spite of His apparent absence, is like running in the opposite direction of the sunset. In order to see the sunrise as soon as possible. It might be a dark path, but you can be sure that it is the right path and that it is the most effective path. If you want to see the sun again, you run in the opposite direction of the sunset. That's the correct and the most effective way to see the sun quickly again. And the right way to respond when the sun goes down on our souls the right way to respond and the most effective way to get through it as quickly as possible notwithstanding whatever God's purposes may be and his sovereignty and perhaps letting it linger but you're going to get through it as soon as possible by pressing on towards communion with God in it Maybe a dark path, but you can be sure that it's the right path and that it's the most effective path. We read here of the confidence that God's people can have about the restoration that awaits them in due time. The Restoration of their relationship with God. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Yes, He has torn us. Yes, He has struck us down. But there's confidence here that in returning to the Lord, we will find healing. We will be bound up. 
After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. The big question here is, is this an allusion to the resurrection? In one, in one sense, no, and in one sense, yes. In, in this sense, no. That there's, I don't think, any way that the original hearers of Hosea would be able to deduce from this that the Messiah would die and be raised on the third day. To the original hearers, they would have heard probably something more like this. That when somebody first drops dead, what do their loved ones do? They rush to them to see if they are alive. And if they're not alive, quite often, say they got hit by a car or had a heart attack or something, there's CPR or other measures which are immediately taken hoping, hoping that this person will come back. But after five minutes go by, or ten minutes go by, an hour goes by, you realize they're not coming back. After two days, they're not coming back. After three days, they're not coming back. This two days, three days is showing that though it feels absolutely hopeless, though it feels absolutely too far gone, that yet, in returning to the Lord, in pressing on to know Him, God, because of His covenant faithfulness, shall surely heal, shall surely bind up. God is able to bring life from death. Now concerning the yes answer to the question, is this an allusion to the resurrection? What do we see happening in the resurrection but God bringing life from death? And God doing so when all hope seemed absolutely lost. Once everybody was absolutely sure that Jesus did not just swoon. Once he had been in the grave for a couple days. Once his side had been pierced. And the Roman centurion who was an expert in executions and death. Verified. Once the death certificate had been issued so to speak. Once he was in the grave. What did God do? But bring life from death. And so there is a correspondence here looking backwards, to be sure. Hosea goes on. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Next time you're struggling through a dark season, or if you're struggling through a dark season now, you can't see God's face. Take this phrase and memorize it and meditate on it. Chew it over and over in your mind. Lay hold of it. God's going out is as sure as the dawn.
at first, going out sounds like a bad thing. God's going out, we think, well, from me. But really, that's an incorrect way of understanding the going out. Because we're not the reference point. If you look at the end of Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15, where is God geographically at the end of verse 15? Or pardon me, at the end of Hosea chapter 5, which is verse 15. Where is God geographically? In His place. He has withdrawn from them, as Hosea 5 verse 6 says, to His place. As Hosea chapter 5 and verse 15 says. So where is God geographically in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 3? In His place. Withdrawn from His people. So when He says here, let us press on to know the Lord, His going out is as sure as the dawn. You know what that means? It means that He's going to go out from His place. From the place that He has withdrawn Himself to. Which means that He's going to come to us. For our good. For our deliverance. For our restoration. His going out is as sure as the dawn. Even my little boys can understand this. We were talking about this passage in family worship this week. I said to them, does the sun come up every day? I said, well, sometimes it's nighttime. I said, yes, that's a true observation. But after nighttime, does the sun always come up? Yes. The sun always comes up. Even on a cloudy day, we can tell the difference between night and day. The sun always comes up. God's going out from the place that He has withdrawn Himself to. Which means God's going out from there to here is as sure as the dawn. What motivation, what comfort for those who are struggling in a dark season to know that as we press on to know the Lord, His going out is as sure as the dawn. Waiting for restored communion with God is as fruitful as waiting for the sunrise. Depending on the time of night, you may wait a short time or a long time, but the sun will rise. And depending on the juncture that you're at with respect to God's purposes for you, you may wait a short time or a long time, but the sun will rise. God will go out from there to you as surely as the dawn. As I've said before, and as I said even earlier this morning, as Christians, our union with Christ is unshakable. If we have entrusted ourselves to His care, trusting in Him alone for salvation from sin, we've been united to Him unchangeably, and firmly, and we can never be severed from Him. But our communion with Him may ebb and flow. Sometimes our communion with Him ebbs as God hides His face from us because of our sin, 
Sometimes our communion with Him ebbs as He hides His face from us for other reasons to accomplish His good purposes in our lives. But whatever the reason for an ebb in our communion with Christ, though the night may be dark, the sunrise is coming. Though the ground may be dry, this is what He goes on to tell us, the rain is on the way. God's going out is as sure as the dawn. I had a friend known to some of you here named David Morris. He was an elderly pastor in the city that I pastored in a number of years ago. And every Tuesday, every Tuesday, including the very week that he died, every Tuesday, I would receive a phone call from him. And the conversation was always short and sweet. And it went something like this. Hi, John. Pastor David here. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Pastor Morris. How are you doing? How's your wife? We're fine, thanks. And then Pastor Morris would come to his great object of concern, for which he phoned me every Tuesday. John, are you pressing on? And I would ask each of you brothers and sisters here this morning the same question. Whatever the state of your communion with God, if you're not yet united to Christ by faith, you don't even belong to Him, you need to have first dealings with Christ. You need to repent of your sin and trust Him and come into a relationship for the first time with Him. But I'm talking to Christians for the moment. Those of you who are united to Christ, whatever the state of your communion with Christ, whatever the state of your enjoyment of God and your, your sense of His presence and so forth, whether enjoying blessed assurance, a foretaste of glory divine, or whether experiencing a dark night of the soul. I would ask you that same question. Are you pressing on? It was hard for me to get to know Pastor Morris well, because he rarely said much to me about himself. Even when I would ask, he would rather talk about my concerns, or better yet, things of the Lord. I don't know if he experienced the dark night of the soul. I suspect so. Simply because it's a common experience of God's people. Even those who are giants among us. But I do know this about Pastor Morris. This is one of the wonderful things about seeing the conclusion of a saint's life. There are no more question marks about will they continue to do as they've done. I do know this about Pastor Morris. Whatever it was that he encountered along the path, he pressed on. He finished that race set before him. He pressed on to know the Lord. And we can say that because his race is finished. We know he pressed on. 
he finished strong. He pressed on then, in spite of any apparent absences of God's presence that he might have felt. Brothers and sisters, he pressed on through any apparent absences that he might have felt. And now, he sees the face of God. He's no longer experiencing a dark night of the soul. I can guarantee that. Beloved, let us likewise, as is urged here, whatever the state of our communion with God, whatever season we find ourselves in, now, today, and in a, in a month from now, in a year from now, in a couple of decades from now, in spite of and through whatever apparent absence of God you might feel. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth.